Oh, man. It's one of the unfortunate things about doing this four times. I, I, can't even, I can't even go there in my mind how I'm going to be able to do this all day, but all morning it has just been super emotional, and, uh, and, and a lot of that has been how much growing up has happened over the last three and a half years for this church and for my family personally, but a lot of that is the heaviness of what God's doing in our day, and I just want to steward it and, and pastor you guys well, and uh, thank you for dealing with me. Um, if we have tissues, that would be awesome. Um, need to go to the, the handheld so that I can manage that better. Did you bring your Bible? <laughs> if you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We have been in a sermon series. It's not really a series. It's just kind of honing in on a few passages. Psalm 23, Psalm 24, back to back. Gage Henry did an incredible job last week. Yeah, it was phenomenal. He can't hear you right now because he's trying to find me a tissue. But um, it, it was a great word. And I've had Romans 5 marked as the final passage that I want to preach in this time and this season. If you don't know the book of Romans, Romans is Paul's ultimate gospel presentation. And by the time he gets to chapter 5, he's established some things that are different from the Jewish assumption about what it meant to be close to God. There's been this decisive shift that has happened. And now in Romans 5, thank you. I'll give Gage a huge hand. You know you've got a good friend and confidant who's going to carry your tissues for you. Thank you, bro. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. Let's stand for the reading of the word like we did the last couple of weeks. Let's stand. We're going to read all of Romans 5. This is the Apostle Paul's ultimate gospel presentation. He can't give it in person, so he writes a letter. And the purpose of the letter is that support would come from this church in Rome so that he can get the gospel to Spain. And in this moment, he tells us the glories of the gospel. Romans chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, if you're there, say, I'm there. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged to anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many who were made sinners So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You may be seated. Come on. Oh, it's so good, y'all. I know that was long and a lot. If you need a title for our sermon on Romans 5, it's called How Much More? How Much More? Look at somebody next to you, tell them how much more? How much more? I don't know if you saw this, but four times in that long passage, Paul used the phrase how much more in comparing things that were true about what happened to humanity because of Adam's sin to what becomes true about humanity because of Jesus's obedience and righteousness and death. And this is a common way of teaching that existed 2,000 years ago in the Jewish rabbinical world, to take an elementary principle that's generally true about life and compare it to a spiritual principle that's much more true because God is involved. Take Jesus, for example. Jesus did this all the time. Think Sermon on the Mount when he talked about worry. He was like, if God clothes the grass and the flowers of the field like that, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? If God cares about the ravens, how much more does he care about you? He uses that phrase, how much more? He does it again when he talks about prayer. This is in Luke chapter 11 when he says, if you fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's a way of going, hey, you know that this is true. So if God's involved, how much more is this true? Romans 5 is Paul doing that comparing what happened to humanity because of Adam to what will happen by grace through faith in Jesus because of what he has done. How much more? This is massive. And what Paul is arguing is that the devastation of sin caused by Adam's original sin is not just leveled out by the reconciliation offered in Jesus. It's leveled entirely and replaced with exponentially more by what Jesus has come to offer us. 
This is the gospel. All I really want to do today is preach the gospel, invite people who don't know Jesus into a relationship with him, invite people who haven't get baptized to get baptized, and then sing about the gospel. Is that okay if that's how we go out at Airport Road? Okay. Let's read Romans 5.1. This is awesome. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, stop right there. That phrase is a summary of Romans chapters one through four. Paul's whole argument at the beginning is, hey, justification before God does not happen by fulfilling the law good enough. It happens by faith. And this is not something that God started with Jesus. This is something that we saw in Abraham at the very beginning of the story when it says, God saw Abraham's faith and credited it to him as righteousness. Paul has to make an argument to the Jewish mind that, hey, this is not about keeping the law good enough to be pleasing to God. Even our forefather, Abraham, was justified because of his faith, his belief, and his trust in the voice of God before he did anything righteous. It's a righteousness that is credited by faith alone. And Paul says, that's how you're justified. And watch this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So faith in Christ over keeping the law. Go down to verse six. I want to show you this. He says, you see at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing. How can God credit righteousness to humanity who's guilty in sin simply because of their faith? Here's how. While we were still powerless, Christ died for us. He uses this weird phrase. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. That's a weird phrase, but when you read it, I want you to think about it like this. When you're weighing whether or not someone's worthy of you giving your life, you don't weigh it on the basis of have their good things outweighed their bad things. But Paul's like, when someone's about to die for someone, they don't stop and go, okay, I, I would, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this, but have they done enough good things to actually earn the fact that I'm going to die for them? Or is it, are they more evil than I, I don't know how to even this out? No, Paul goes, no, very rarely is that the scales that they're using. He goes, though for a good person, someone might dare to die. You might die because you see a worthwhile nature to the person you're dying for where you go, you know what? It is worth it for me to sacrifice my life so that they could live on. And we see this in our relationships with our kids. We see this in our relationships with our spouses, with those that we care about. We go, I would die for them because I love them and I believe that their life is worthwhile. Paul goes, okay. So you wouldn't die for them on the basis of whether or not they're good or bad. You might die for them on the basis of whether or not saving their life is worthwhile. But watch this. Here's how you know how crazy and radical and ridiculous the love of God is. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when Christ died for you, He's not looking at a future version of you going, okay, well, eventually they're going to get it together and figure out how to become obedient enough, how to make their life worthwhile enough for me to actually give mine. He's not projecting into some futuristic reality, your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds. He actually made the decision to die for you on your worst day while we were dead in sin. So I think there's a temptation to view the grace of God as 
rescuing you from your worst place and delivering you into this other place. But you need to understand this. The grace of God invaded your story at your lowest possible moment. And if you're here today and that lowest possible moment is right now, good news. That's the moment where the love of God wants to invade your story the most. If you're here within the sound of my voice and you're going, I am stuck under the noose of slavery and the weight of sin, and I can't get myself out of it. And everybody here is singing about the faithfulness and promises of God. And that guy's crying and blowing his nose, thinking about God. And I'm, I'm just, I know my life does not look like that. My story doesn't look like that. My family doesn't look like that. Good news. According to the gospel, the fact that your life doesn't look like that is exactly what puts you in line for the love of God to invade your story today like never before. Why? Because God is rich in mercy. And then it's at this point where Paul establishes these realities about the Gospels that he starts throwing his how much more statement. There are four different ones. I want to show you all of them. The first one's in verse 9. He says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's look at the first how much more. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Think about this verse, y'all. And think about the way you grew up hearing about the grace of God and the blood of Jesus saving you. If you think about it deeply enough, this verse doesn't make a lot of sense. Since we have now been justified by the blood of Jesus, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You're like, I thought being justified by the blood of Jesus was me being saved from God's wrath. Why is Paul reaching back to a previous reality, but then talking about salvation as if it's future as well? Because in the Jewish mind, justification and salvation were two related but different things. And what we've done in the Christian church, particularly if you're like me and you come from a more reformed background, is we've equated justification and salvation as if they are the same thing. They go together, but they're not. Let's put those words side by side on the screen, if you will, just so you know the difference between what I'm talking about. So when you think about these two words, Paul goes, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved? What does he mean by that? Well, when he talks about justification, he's talking about a previous thing that happened to you so that you could be declared innocent in the court of God's presence, as it were. So when you hear justification, think court of law. Are you guilty or are you innocent? And what Paul's arguing is that because of the blood of Jesus, when you display faith in God, the blood of Jesus provides justification so that before God, you are declared innocent, you are declared righteous in his sight. So justification is a previous reality that happened on the cross. But watch this, and we'll put this on the screen. Salvation is past, present, and future. So when you hear justification, I want you to go to the cross in your mind 
And that's beautiful. But what Paul's doing is including what happened to justify you in a process that is previous, current, and future called saving you. If you are a Christian within the sound of my voice, you have to come to grips with these three tensions all coexisting in your life. You were saved by Jesus. You are being saved by Jesus if you are in Christ. And you will be saved. And all three of those things are equally true at the same time right now. And you're like, wait, if it's, if it's past, how is it present and how is it future? Only God has the capacity to declare something that will happen as something that already happened. Okay? So for him, these tenses are all one and the same. And what Paul is doing is he's going, hey, you know how you were justified because of the blood of Jesus on the cross in the past? If that's true, how much more will the salvation of your soul unfold in real time through a process that we call sanctification, becoming more like Jesus over time? And how much more will the promise of your body being risen from the grave, living forever in the kingdom of God, free from sin, every tear wiped from humanity's eyes in perfect union with God and one another for all of eternity? And Paul is going, that reality for you as a Christian is just as sure and true as the reality that Jesus previously died for you. So justification to declare you innocent in the sight of God, that's already happened. But salvation has happened, is happening, and will happen. And Paul's talking about how beautiful this is. He goes on verse 15 and he says this, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace And the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? I want to make these how much mores make sense. You see how he's continuing to go with that phrasing of, okay, if you know this is true, how much more is this true? Well, in this moment, he's going, hey, you know how one man sinned and through that trespass all men died? Well, when one man obeyed and laid down his life as a ransom and rose from the dead, the impact of his act of obedience far outweighs the impact of Adam's act of disobedience. How much does Adam's act of disobedience weigh heavily on us? I don't know. Let's just think about it for a second. Sin enters into the world and what happens to humanity? We become evil by nature We now live in expiring bodies that will one day decay and die in a world that we were created to reign in and live in forever. You know, people say death is a part of life. No, it is not. It is the opposite. We were not created to decay and die. We were created to grow and flourish. But because of sin, the consequences of sin, the wages of sin, like the payout of sin is death. And it's not just death physically. It's death spiritually. There's a separation from God morally. It's why humanity by nature is evil. No one has to teach my daughters how to disobey Courtney and I. They just know. 
And I know this from personal experience. And if you want to know, where are these attacks from the enemy hitting Miles and Courtney right now? They have, I was going to say they have three names, but Mercy Jane's perfect. Uh, They're called Aniston and Elliot. That's what they're called. And they're amazing. But they're also a source of reminder of the power of original sin. It is, no one had to teach these girls how to act out like this. It's just in them. And it's just in you. No one had to teach you how to desire sin more than you desire the righteousness of God. You just do because it lives in you and it causes you to to act out in all kinds of profane ways. It causes divorce. It causes infidelity. It causes cancer. It causes impacts both physically and relationally. It causes even little things like how short we are with one another or how much we gossip about each other or how insecure we are relationally. Sin impacts every facet of the human experience to the day that you die. You feel that. You know that just by sitting here right now. Paul is going. Think about the weight of that sin by that man causing this in your life. You need to know what that man, Jesus, did for you on the cross does not carry equal weight to what Adam did. It carries exponentially more weight on its impact to your life. Like a lot more. See, the problem with so many of us is we view what Jesus did as evening out what Adam did. It's like Adam did this and we went bad and then Jesus got us back into Eden and now we will live forever the way. No, 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 Paul's going, no, not like that. These are not the same. These cannot be compared to each other. This is not the same game. This is not the same league. The gift is not like the trespass. If the trespass was this bad, how much better will the righteousness that reigns through life impact your life? Why am I preaching about the richness of God's mercy? Because I believe arguably The greatest challenge I face every week I get in front of you to preach at whatever location we're meeting at is an impoverished view of the grace of God. We got a poverty mindset. God's grace is enough to save me from everything I've done so far, but oh man, if I screw this up again, I just know he's on his last leg of patience with me. I just know I've blown it too much already. And most of us live like we believe the grace of God, and I'm talking to Christians, but we live like it's a, it was a close call. Like we got in, but man, it took a lot, and like we won on Easter Sunday by one point at the buzzer. Like it was like, oh, I was so close, thank God. Paul's trying to remind you, no, it's not close. Like the payout that Jesus's blood went down on your life for didn't just pay the debt. It paid it a hundred million times over. Yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. And, 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 and the reason why you've got to learn to see God's grace as lavish is because your view of the size of God's grace will become, whether you believe this or not, the size of the boldness of your faith. There's a, there's a relationship between how big you think the grace of God is and how much you're willing to bet on God with your faith. Why? Because if you, have, if you have a small view of God's grace, you'll live your life with an orphan mindset. And so you'll keep coming before him as if you owe him, as if like, I'm just, I'm not even a son. I'm not a daughter. I'm just a guest in the house who gets food every once in a while. And I'm lucky to be here. And so I just need to like take my place and say my prayers and make it there one day. And that orphan mentality will end up robbing you of the faith that delivers you into more of God. That's why Romans 5 began talking about faith. 
That's why every time Paul brings up grace, he brings up faith as well, because we are saved what? By grace alone, through faith alone. These two things work in tandem. It means your willingness to believe God boldly is connected to your willingness to trust that God forgives you unconditionally. I don't think I've fully connected the two until this moment this week of going, it's almost like sermons about the grace of God and God loves you despite your sin are over here and those feel great. And then there's other sermons about courageous, bold faith. Like, come on guys, let's be like Gideon, let's be like Joshua, let's be like Esther, let's be bold. And, it, and they almost feel like they're two different topics. Now, yes, God loves you and he forgives you and let's rise up with bold faith. And what I'm saying today is what Paul's doing right here is he's going, here's how they connect. How much you and I in our minds create space for the grace of God will be how much room we create in our lives to display bold faith. Here's a better way of saying it. You can write this down. There's a direct relationship between your view of God's grace and the boldness of your faith. There's a direct relationship between your view of God's grace and the boldness of your faith. How much you give God room to forgive you and love you will be equal to the space you create for him to show off and enter your life. Because to believe him boldly for more is to believe that he's picked you. And for so many of us, we don't realize that the gap in our lives spiritually is not like a, a calling gap or a gifting gap or a qualification gap. It's a faith gap. And it's a faith gap to believe God for more because we struggle to believe God for more because we struggle to believe God that it's us that he wants to use, that it's us that he loves. And so agreeing with God about how much you're loved by him goes hand in hand with God using you in a mighty way and displaying bold faith in and through your life. There is not a lot that I can put in front of you guys as follow me as I follow Christ and do this exactly the way I do it and you'll be fine. Like I, most of the time I get up here and preach to you guys and I'm like, y'all, I'm like struggling to figure this out with you. And here's some thoughts I had from the word of God this week. That, that's what the dynamic is most of the time. But if there is maybe one marker about my life that I look at and I go, well, that's gotta be it. It's that I find a faith in me to trust God to forgive me again in the state of my despair and desperation that leads to him using me over time. And I want to just encourage you with it. The battle, the continual battle of your lifelong journey with God will be a battle to remain humble in his presence and remember you are not entitled to be there. You did not earn it. You have nothing to offer even on your best day. All our righteous works, like what does Isaiah say? Filthy rags before God. We've got nothing that we're bringing into his presence. So staying in that humility and staying humbly aware of the state that you're in because of sin, that's good, but don't stay there. There's a boldness of faith that comes over you when you stay aware of how desperate you are without the grace of God, but you also stay equally aware of how much more the grace of God has redeemed you for in the future. And if there is one thing in eight and a half years that I've learned to do over time, it is to bring that disgusting part of you that you don't want to bring before God and go, God, somehow, as much as it's counterintuitive and as much as I don't want to believe this, I'm bringing me, all of me in front of you, and I'm going to dare to believe that you not only love me in this state, 
but you choose me and delight in me. Already way too many tears today. I'm, I'm listening to a podcast while I'm running this morning and I just hear the guy, he was talking about prayer and, and just learning to listen to God in your one-on-one -on -one time with God. And he said, the first time I stopped long enough to hear what God had to say, I was so shocked by what I felt like I was discerning from his voice. I would have assumed that he had, this is another guy talking. He said, I would have assumed that he had a thousand corrective things to talk me through in things I was doing wrong currently about my life. And the first time I slowed myself down long enough to discern the voice of God, I felt a stunning, undeniable clarity that what God was saying was, oh, if you could only see how much I love you. And I go there in my head. I, I go to last night because our kids have been horrible to a certain extent lately. And I had to discipline my oldest last night. And seeing her response to that discipline and the sadness on her face, the like angst in my spirit to go, oh, if you only knew. Like, I have to grow you and do this right now but if you only knew how hard this is for me to see you sad and how much everything about my efforts to love you moving forward will be to help you become the woman you are called to be. It's like if we can somehow discern that level of God's orientation toward us in his grace, we are able to step confidently in whatever he's called us to do moving forward. So my, my, my whole sermon today is this, believe boldly about the grace of God. Take the grace of God more seriously than you take the inconsistency of your past. And let's just fall before God boldly right now and believe him for more. I'm believing today for increased faith to come with a new view of God's grace. And as we become a church that is passionate about raising the bar of discipleship. I never want that raised bar to negate the grace of God. Y'all know we're, we're going into a new building and I warned you, we're about to see things that we haven't seen so far in the life of our church. And I'm going to be calling people to repentance. I'm gonna be talking about hell. I'm gonna be talking about God's standard on sexuality. I'm gonna be talking about every, everything that this book has always said, okay? And, but I never want our church raising the bar of what it means to be a disciple. We don't want to be consumers. We want to be disciples. I love that. I love that. But I never want that to become legalistic and go, hey, you're like not surrendered enough to, to experience this grace. You need to get, no, guys, we got to keep that lavish picture of the grace of God. Yeah of anybody and everybody, in the, in the worst state that you're in, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So we're gonna hold those realities in, hand in hand, and I'm gonna extend an invitation today, right now. If you have never accepted Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, there has never been a better day than today to say yes to a relationship with him. When we take communion, I want you to take communion for the first time as a believer in Jesus and just pray the simple prayer, God, I give you my life. I don't know where we're going, but I give you everything. If you're here and you have made that decision, but you've never gotten baptized in front of your local church, I wanna ask you, bold faith. Our first baptism gathering in our new location will be in a couple of months. 
We literally, this is one of the things I'm most excited about in the building, we built drains into the floor of the auditorium so we can do baptisms whenever we want. Like, it was like, no more tarp over the first five rows. We're just going to have drains in the bottom of the floor because we know water's going to be flowing from the tub of baptism a lot in this new building. So if you want to get baptized, you can sign up for that. There's a couple of months to get that process ready. Final word, and then I'll pray and we'll take communion. Paul said, how much more? Four times. Jesus used this teaching tactic. I want to end by using it to take us into this next month. Paul said, if this is the destruction of what Adam did, how much more life and mercy and freedom is available for you because of what Jesus has done? It's so much bigger than you think. Jesus said, if you fathers know how to give good gifts to your kids and you're evil, like really evil, how much more will your perfect heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I just, I love that teaching tactic. And it is the last thought I want to leave you with in this space as we go into a new one. And it's this. Eight and a half years ago, there was a random group of people who started the most random church disconnected from any network or affiliation or church planting. What I mean, we were just a small group of people praying. And the hand of God has shown out for eight and a half years. And if you've been coming here for a while, this will make more sense. If you're new, just go with us on this. I want you right now to think about every memory you have in the life of this church. I want you to think about baptism gatherings. I want you to think about Ham Wilson and the livestock arena. Think about the many spaces that we've gathered and how much God has shown out. Think about your own baptism if you got baptized. Think about what God has done missionally through all that we've done. Eight and a half years. Now, if that's what God did with that, how much more do you think God is about to do in the future of this church? I'm so excited. I, I couldn't be more on my knees, face down before God in prayer. And I, I could not be in more of a place of not missing the point. Please do not in a few weeks go and worship a created thing. It's a nice building. At the end of the day, it's a building. We worship God. And we're going after his presence. He's the amazing one that we're going after. But at the same time, please don't go into that building, arms crossed, like, don't look at it. Don't enjoy it. It's the golden calf. It's not, I'm, I will not worship 2200 Hamilton Road. Like, you know, God's a father and he likes to see his kids open their gifts and enjoy them. When you come into that space, look around and stand in awe. God's good. Smile, cry, I will be. Laugh and praise him because how much more is he about to do? You can get your elements out for communion right now at all of our locations. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand right where you're at. Someone from our team will bring it your way. This is our reminder of the body and the blood of Jesus, our reminder of the sacrifice and the grace that's available. Just raise your hand high. They'll, they'll bring it your way. Let's remember the price that was paid for us to have this access to God. In light of Romans chapter 5, Let's take communion today. Husbands, you can pray over your wives and then we'll sing together in just one second. Let's enjoy this time in the presence of God.